pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to those of you in our parent viewing area. It's a great option if you do have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. I want to say hello to those of you on our uh, online campus and our microsite. Awesome to have you participating with us this morning as well. And uh, before we uh, jump into the talk this morning, this is our week uh, every year where we do something called the Legacy Offering. And so here's what that means. We're not doing anything separate. It's just that uh, when you give, if you'd like to give specifically towards uh, the Legacy Project, and what that is, is uh, we take uh, money that goes above and beyond our regular giving, and this is a one-time sort of uh, gift that goes outside of these four walls. We find projects that are uh, taking place around the world and locally, and people who are already doing great things, and rather than try to create our own thing, we just say, how can we get behind what you're doing and help fund the great work that you've already got going? And so uh, that is today, if you'd like to give towards that, uh, you can just mark it if you're using an envelope. Just mark Legacy Project on your envelope. If you're using the app or online, select the Legacy Project Fund. And then when we collect all of those between uh, now and the end of the year, all that comes into that, we use that to fund those projects. And so uh, in January, on January 23rd, uh, that Sunday, during the evening, we're going to invite everybody back, anybody who wants to come and participate, and we're going to just look back at the year 2021 and celebrate all the projects that we were able to be a part of and uh, walk through that together. And so um, a kind of a year in review party that night. And so uh, save the date, January 23rd. But uh, that's what this is. That's what our legacy offering is. So when you give today, if you'd like to give um, above and beyond your regular giving towards the legacy project, uh, you can mark that on your envelope or mark it on the website or in the app. Awesome. So uh, today we are uh, continuing our series and we're actually wrapping up this series today. And uh, I got to tell you, I read this uh, story this last week about a roller coaster at Six Flags in uh, Texas. This uh, last spring in May, they were on the ride and a sensor went off, a safety sensor went off, and it caused the ride to stop. In fact, we have a picture of this. Uh, They were stuck upside down for 45 minutes. (laughs) <laughs> this is not fun. And this is one of my biggest fears on roller coasters. I, I enjoy roller coasters, but I'm always afraid that uh, it's going to just stop halfway and I'm just going to be stuck somewhere. And here these guys are. They're white knuckling it for about 45 minutes until they could finally fix the safety sensor and then get the ride going again. Everybody was safe. Everybody made it through. But man, can you imagine hanging upside down, holding on for 45 minutes at the top of the Batman ride at Six Flags? Now, uh, I don't know if you have uh, this same fear or anxiety when you're on a roller coaster, but, uh, you know, I think that when I picture the way that we live our lives sometimes, a lot of people uh, feel stuck. A lot of people feel like they, they are stuck by anxieties that they fear, and uh, anxiety has you feeling stuck. Maybe it's the pace of society. Uh, maybe it's the constant comparison on social media. Uh, maybe it's the... Um, the increase in technology is causing your, your workflow to just be more than you can handle or all of these things kind of leave us living life on the edge. And we live in a society today that's so fast-paced and that's so filled with comparison that oftentimes we can kind of be white-knuckling it through life and we've got a lot of anxieties that we carry. In fact, uh, there's a book called Anxiety Free by Dr. Robert Lee and he says the average teenager today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. That's how how much our society has changed. And so everybody worries 
about something. All of us have some kind of anxiety, something that we worry about. And the reason I know this is true is because of the vast number of books that are written about how to deal with your stress and your anxiety and your worry. And the reason books keep being written is because people keep purchasing them. And the reason people keep purchasing them is because of the amount of things that we worry about. I read this uh, last week that in America, the level of anxiety in the United States has increased year over year over year over year for the last 80 years in a row. Think about that. And that makes sense because we've got, you know, uh, uh, world wars and, and we've got uh, uh, all kinds of conflict that we've seen. We've had a lot of unrest. We've experienced tons of political unrest. We experienced uh, 9-11. Uh, and then we went through a recession in 2008 that caused us to kind of recognize how fragile our economy can be. And, and then uh, just the last 20 months, we've gone through all kinds of craziness, both political unrest and uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, worldwide pandemic and all these things that have just caused so much division and anxiety and worry and stress and all of these things. And maybe you're like, man, I I wasn't struggling with anxiety before I came here, but now, (laughs) thanks. Anxiety is a problem. We carry anxiety around like a software virus. It's like, have you ever been working on your computer and you're like, man, this thing just feels bogged down and it feels slow. And, and maybe you call your IT department at work or you take it in somewhere and they're like, yeah, there's, there's actually this virus running in the background. And that's how anxiety kind of works in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own body, is that it feels like, you know, I'm just not functioning at full capacity. It feels like I'm bogged down. It feels like I'm weighed down. It feels like I'm moving slower. And anxiety is the present emotion that we feel when we fear potential future loss. So in other words, I'm afraid of the potential that I'm going to lose something in the future. So that's a fear that we have. And then anxiety is the present emotion. That's how it exhibits itself. So I have this fear, that's the thought, is this fear that I might lose something in the future. And the present emotion of that is anxiety. And for the last seven weeks, we've been reading through a letter that the Apostle Peter writes to followers of Jesus who are living scattered across the northern provinces of Europe in the first century Roman Empire. And he's writing to this group of Jesus followers who are doing their best to follow Jesus. And he's been talking to them about how to live as citizens of heaven with our feet planted here on earth. And the overwhelming message to this letter has been that we are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven, but that we are citizens of heaven making our way on earth. And so our past doesn't determine our identity. Our past behavior doesn't determine our identity. Our identity is determined by who God says that we are. But our identity, who we are in Jesus, ought to determine our future behavior. And so he's talking to them and telling them how we live here on earth makes a difference in eternity. And that means as citizens of heaven, we live lives that oftentimes look different than the way that the rest of the world lives. And for these followers of Jesus that are living in the first century in the Roman Empire, to follow Jesus means they could literally face imprisonment, uh, arrest. They could face torture and even execution for making the decision to follow Jesus. So you can imagine the level of anxiety and worry and concern that comes with that. And Peter is reminding them over and over again as we read through this letter. He's saying, we have a living hope because our hope is in the one who overcame death. And so as Peter kind of wraps up this letter, we're in chapter 5, it's the last chapter of 1 Peter, and he's wrapping up this letter, and he, he 
kind of writes some incredible verses that we find in this fifth chapter about how to deal with our fears and our worries and our anxieties. And before we jump into these verses, I want us to understand a little bit about where these fears come from. Uh, there's a, uh, a psychologist named Dr. Carl Albrecht who kind of broke a lot of our big fears that we face in life down into some categories. And here's some of these categories, and maybe this will resonate with you. The first one he says is uh, the, just the fear of extinction. It's the most primal, basic fear is that we, you know, none of us wants to die. It's just survival, right? Uh, and it's why you have anxiety. Maybe some of you have anxiety around snakes. Makes sense. That's a legitimate fear. When you think about the anxiety you have around snakes, what are you afraid of? Dying. That's what I'm afraid of with snakes, right? And you're like, Jeremiah, it's just a garter snake. You're not going to die. Yes, I will. <laughs> I hate snakes. Who else hates snakes so much that, yeah, thank you. This is a legitimate fear. Some of you, uh, it's fear of heights. That's why you hate flying. That's why you sat with a counselor and said, I have a crippling fear of flying. And the counselor said, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? And you're like, uh, the plane could go down and I could die. That's a legitimate fear, right? That's a, that's a pretty legitimate fear. And so uh, Dr. Albrecht says the first sort of category is just extinction. It's the most primal basic fear is that none of us wants to die. And so there's like a fear of that. And that's kind of how it exhibits itself is in some of these things that we think have the potential to take our life away. But then he says there's this other level of fear where it's around this category of autonomy. Autonomy meaning all of us love the idea that we are self-directed, that I can make decisions for my life, that the decisions I make actually lead me down a path that, you know, there's like cause and effect. If I make this decision, it'll lead me down this path. And I get to determine what I'm going to do today. I'm in charge of my own destiny. In fact, uh, you have the freedom to stand up and walk out. If you're watching online, you have the freedom to turn it off. Nobody can stop you. Right? And that's just the reality. Nobody's forcing you today because ultimately you have autonomy. You have the power to be self-directed. You have some level of control. And so the anxiety, how this sort of shows itself up, the fear is that uh, if there's economic instability, we experience anxiety when we fear potentially the loss of a job or an economic downturn because it's closely connected to our fear of the loss of autonomy or the idea that I would no longer be able to be self-directed. It, it's, the, it, it's why people hoard things, because it, it's about control. We're building more and more stuff, uh, more and more storage units in the United States to store all of our stuff. And one of the fears that motivates hoarding is, what if I need that at some point and I don't have it anymore? And so instead, we buy a storage unit and we stick it in there and so that someday when we die, our kids have to go through it. Right? That's, it's a loss of autonomy or a loss of control. That's what motivates hoarding. I'll tell you how it shows up for me. The loss of autonomy is that I, uh, I am a horrible, horrible passenger. I always want to be the one driving. I just, just I, I'm wired like that's, why? Because it's a fear of control. I'm that guy. Because I never want to be stuck in your vehicle somewhere where you want to stay longer and I want to get out of there. And you're like, no, let's stay a little bit longer. And I'm just like, oh man, I want to get out of here. So I'm just a horrible passenger, but ultimately, if you drill down on that, it's the fear of the loss of autonomy, that I might not be in control or be self-directed for whatever length of period of time that might be. And so it's a fear of autonomy, a loss of autonomy. And then there's this next level, and this is the fear of separation. It's the fear of being single or being alone, the fear of getting divorced. It's this primarily what motivates our anxiety around the fear of losing a loved one. 
that we would be separated from someone that we love. What, what would happen if, if he were to die, if she were to die? If I lose someone that I love, I don't know how I would handle that. I don't know how I would make it. This is uh, one of the things that motivated the removal of monkey bars from playgrounds, right? Because it's like, well, what happens to kids? It's like when I was growing up, those things were 13 feet off the ground and six feet apart, man. I'm telling you. But it was like, oh, no, because parents today, they love their kids more. And so... Uh, Playgrounds are much safer now, you know. I think when I was a kid, like, we didn't have car seats. I think my car seat was like a phone book and a piece of twine. They were like, here, strap yourself in, you know. Now there's like eight connection points, and you keep a kid in there till you're 15. It's crazy. <laughs> it's all about safety. But I don't, it's this fear of separation. I don't want to lose someone that I love. And then one more level, and he says the last one is this fear of ego, the, that uh, fear of failure, Uh, Fear of being embarrassed, fear of being ridiculed, fear that someone wouldn't like me, uh, fear of humiliation or rejection. And uh, there's uh, this great theologian from the 90s uh, named Jerry Seinfeld who says uh, that the two greatest fears of being human are the fear of death and the fear of public speaking. And he says that uh, more common then the fear of death is the fear of public speaking. And so he says, if you boil it down, people would rather actually be in the casket than speaking at the funeral. (laughs) That's a weird way to look at it, right? And so as primal as the fear of extinction is, and as like basic as that is, that's not really a fear that we think of on a day-to-day basis as much as the uh, fear of ego. It's much more complex and nuanced. It has to do with... Uh, the thing that we fear most is not necessarily losing our life, but the fear of not really being able to live, not really living the life we want. And if I'm being honest, as as I sort of have been processing this this week, I I have some fears and anxieties that I deal with on a regular basis. Not only the fear of losing a family member, that's a really legitimate fear, someone that I love, but also uh, on a regular basis, the fear of am I going to have enough to provide for my family? What, what happens if the economy takes a turn and, and I can't provide for my family? What, you know, that's a legitimate fear. That's a legitimate concern or an anxiety. And then I'll tell you, just to be very personal, uh, one of my anxieties, and, and some people struggle with this and some people don't, but I'll tell you, an anxiety that I have is uh, I want to be liked by people. And so for the last 15 years, uh, being a pastor at Westbridge Church, it's, a, it's always a battle to make sure that God, I want to do what you've called me to do and not just do things for the sake of being liked by other people. And yet here's what will happen. Uh, I, I might walk out uh, on a Sunday and people say, man, thanks so much. That really spoke to me. That was great. And, you know, 20 people will say, thanks so much. And we loved it here. Or this is our first time. We felt so welcome. And I'll get one email on a Thursday that'll be like, hey, I didn't like this. And I'll just be like, oh, oh man, I'm a wreck. <laughs> and I lose sleep over it. And it's like, what is that? Well, it's this anxiety. It's, it's really this idea that's wrapped around ego. And I had a, a coach uh, say something to me earlier this year, and it was, it's been so helpful. It's been a mantra for me over the last, you know, 15 months. He said, what you need to remember is you've got nothing to prove and nobody to impress. And that's what I've been telling myself. But I know that it comes down to ego, that it's a constant battle within me because I want to be liked. And at the same time, I want to make decisions that are, you know, helpful, that are, that are really saying, God, this is what you've called us to do, and I want to be faithful to do what you've called us to do, regardless of if that decision means someone likes me or not. 
But, but if I'm being honest with you, that's a, it's a constant internal struggle. It's this battle to fight my own ego. And I got I to gotta recite this mantra to myself throughout the year. Jeremiah, you've got nothing to prove and you've got nobody to impress. Just, just do the thing that God's called you to do and leave the rest up to him. But it's a battle. It's a struggle. And these are very real and very present fears that fuel for all of us varying levels of anxiety. And while we're not the first ones to wrestle with this, and the specifics might change from sort of generation to generation, that emotion is something that we always wrestle through as human beings. And yet, we follow a humble Savior whose invitation is, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and you will find rest for your soul. And sometimes it's difficult to reconcile those things. And Peter writes this letter. And he wants to remind his readers, us included, that there is a way to deal with worry and anxiety and fear and sort of deal with that when they hit. And we don't have to become paralyzed by fear. We don't have to become crippled by worry, even when the situation around us seems out of control. So as we read through 1 Peter chapter 5, and we explore these verses together, there are some things that we learn. And the first one is this. Choose humility. Choose humility. Okay, well, what does that mean? This is a, this is a connection that we don't often make. But there is a huge connection between humility and anxiety. And the reason for that is, is the apostle Peter writes about this connection. And he writes about this to followers of Jesus in the first century. Here's what he says in uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Okay, well, what does humility have to do with anxiety? Well, basically, pride says, I got this. I can handle this. Uh, it's under control. I don't need help from anybody. I can totally handle this. And I'm, I'm weighed down by my anxiety, but I've got it. Whereas humility says, no, I'm weighed down by anxiety and I, don't, I, just, I need help. My pride is keeping me from admitting that it's just too heavy. And, I, and I'm trying to control things I know I, I can't control. And my fear of what could happen in the future is actually causing so much present anxiety. It's slowing down my life. It's like a virus operating in my, my, my whole system. And so Peter continues and he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. Peter would say humility actually says, God, this is too much for me to handle and I want to hand this off to you. Peter says if we will humble, humble ourselves, that we can actually cast our cares and our worries and our anxieties onto him. And that he will lift us up. And what you'll notice throughout the scriptures is nowhere, not, not Peter, not the Apostle Paul, not Jesus, nowhere do you find where it says in the scriptures or where Jesus commands to pray for God to give you humility. Doesn't, doesn't, you will not find it. What you find is the command to humble yourself, to clothe yourself with humility. And there are a couple ways you can do that. One is to just work really, really hard at being like, I need to be more humble. I need to be more humble. I need to be more humble. And you know what's central to that? I. And as long as you're like, I need to be more humble, it's really still very I-centric. And it's not a great route towards humility. There's another way, though, to achieve humility. And that is to stop looking at yourself and to start seeing other people. And to start looking at other people and to start serving other people. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. 
In other words, humility is not a diminished view of me. It's just thinking about me less often. And what you discover is that when you take your eyes off of yourself and you start looking at how you can serve others, your difficulties and your fears and your worries and your anxieties and your cares and your concerns, they get diminished in your view. And your situation may not have changed at all, but your perspective has. Because when you serve other people, it takes your eyes off of you. When you humble yourself, it releases you from carrying the burden of your anxiety. When you humble yourself and give that anxiety to God, Peter says, you feel lighter. He lifts you up in due time. In due time. And part of the reason that we struggle with in due time is because we want to be the ones to determine in due time. And usually that means now. Like, I, I don't want to wait for God's timing. I want to do it. I, I, rather than wait on God's timing, I'd rather impose my timing on God, which means now. And yet, the reason that we don't get to determine due time is because we're the same people who still burn the roof of our mouth on pizza. <laughs> like, it's happened before, and we still can't wait for it to cool down. It's like, no, I got to bite it right now. Due time might be at the end of the week or it might be at the end of the month. It might be at the end of the year or next year or next decade. God decides due time, but the promise is that we can take all of our anxiety in the meantime, all of our cares, all of our worries, and we can actually give it to him. We can cast it on him and he will lift us up and make us lighter. Why? Because he cares about you. Well, what has God ever done to show that he cares about me? He sent Jesus into the world to show you what God's love is like and to express his love by giving his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. And so you would know how much he loves you and cares about you. You can cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. And here's what Peter is writing. Peter, remember, is a guy who uh, denied Jesus, denied that he even knew Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied Jesus three times. And he's, now he's writing and he's saying, look, God cares about you. Well, Peter, how do you know that? Because I know that I denied him three times and he didn't judge me. He welcomed me with open arms. He reminded me how much he cared for me. And if he cared for me after what I did, I know he cares for you. Okay, so I can give my anxiety to God. That's great and all, but okay, how do I do that? What does that look like? What does that mean to just give my anxiety and my cares to God? Number two, give your worry to God through prayer. All right, time out. Of course, you're going to say prayer. That is the preacher answer. This is a church. And uh, just prayer. I totally understand the pushback on that. Peter says, first, I humble myself. I recognize the universe doesn't revolve around me, that there are other people. I'm not the only one with worries and fears and anxieties. And then when I humble myself and focus on others, it actually releases me from carrying the burden of anxiety. But then I can literally give my worry and anxiety to God through prayer. I can hand it off. Wouldn't it be great if I could just take all that I'm dealing with, all that I'm carrying, all the worries, all the stress, all the anxiety, just hand it to him? I do this all the time when I'm grocery shopping with my kids. And we're going to like, hey, guys, let's run into the grocery store. I'm just going to grab one thing. So we don't get a cart because you're just grabbing one thing. And one thing becomes 30 things. And you know what I do? I grab something and I'm like, oh, I, we also need to grab this. And I go, hey, will you hold that for me? And then we, I remember, oh, yeah, that's right. Hey, will you hold that for me? And pretty soon my kids are like this carrying around, and it's great. And I just hand it off to them. <laughs> and Peter says you can literally do that with your cares and anxieties. You can just be like, hey, God, this is getting a little heavy. Can you carry this for me? Can, can, you, can you take this? Will you carry this, please? 
Now, before you write this off as being oversimplistic, I, I want to just take a look at a couple of verses from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes to a group of people living in the same region. They live in Philippi. And as we read these verses, I want you to take note, Paul writes these verses from prison. And if anybody has reason to have anxiety and worry and stress, it's a guy who is in prison for following Jesus. And yet listen to what he writes. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then... And then means like when you do the first thing, then this happens, right? When you clean your room, then you get to have a cookie. When you finish your homework, then you get to go out with your friends. Then is the byproduct. If, if A happens, then B happens. But B only happens once A takes place. And he says, so don't worry. Instead, what I want you to do instead of worrying is I want you to tell God what you need and I want you to thank him for all he's done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything you can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Paul says, instead of spending your energy carrying an anxiety over something that you have no control over, spend that energy in prayer, telling God exactly how you feel, telling God exactly what you need, hand off your concerns and your cares and your worries and your anxieties to him, and then thank him for all that he has done because gratitude shifts our perspective on things. And he says, look, when you do that, I can't explain it to you. It's not going to make sense. People will look at your life and say, how do you have peace when your whole situation hasn't changed? It's still out of your control. Paul says, I, I don't understand it and I can't even explain it to you, but you're going to have a peace that actually exceeds our ability to understand. And it will guard your heart and guard your mind. You're not going to lose sleep anymore. It's not going to keep you awake at night. It, it's not going to slow down. It's not going to be like a virus anymore. Like you're going to be able to operate. And your situation may not have changed at all. But suddenly, your perspective will change because God's peace will guard your heart and guard your mind. Paul says when you face fears and worries and anxieties, God doesn't just remove you from the situation. He has the strength to give you the peace through the midst of that situation. Well, that just seems way too easy. But Peter would continue with another thought. You can give your cares, you can give your anxieties to God, but also, number three, acknowledge that you have an enemy. Acknowledge that it's not easy. It's doable, it's possible, but it's not easy. And as we read through the next verses of 1 Peter, he's closing out this letter and he wants to remind them that when you choose to live as a citizen of heaven, your life looks different but that when you do that, there is an enemy that doesn't want to see God's way lived out in the world. When I think about this, you know, this fight, I think about the classic 1976 movie, Rocky. Great movie, right? Great movie, classic about an amateur boxer from Philadelphia who finally gets his shot at the heavyweight title. And so he uh, faces Apollo Creed, the master of disaster, versus Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion. Great nicknames. Classic movie, right? And anybody remember how many rounds that fight went in the original Rocky movie? Fifteen. Fifteen rounds. Fantastic. And it's amazing. And even though Rocky didn't win, he, he just inspired everybody. Everybody loved him, and it inspired so many people that they decided to make Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, Rocky 5, Rocky 6, Creed, Creed 2. I mean, it's amazing. I can't wait for Rocky 15. Like, you know, Sylvester Stallone's going to be like 112. 
So you're like, come on. It's absolutely amazing. That's why to this day, grown men walk around their house and go, yo, Adrian. From one movie. It's amazing. But here's what I can tell you. There are a lot of things that are worth fighting for in life. And there are a lot of things that seem to really matter in the moment. Poor customer service matters in the moment. Like, oh, this is worth fighting for right now. A, a stolen credit card number matters in the moment. Someone forgetting to put extra pickles on your Whopper matters in the moment. Uh, someone cutting you off while you're driving only matters in the moment. What the weather is like only matters in the moment. The fact that your Wi-Fi is slow and not working very well only matters in the moment. But what's interesting is how passionate and emotionally invested we become in those things. In the moment, it's like, man, this is worth the fight. We're ready to fight because those things are important in the moment. I am begging you, don't waste your time, your energy, and your resources fighting things that only matter in the moment. Instead, here's what Peter writes. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. Part of our anxiety is that we get focused on our own life, on our own world, on our own suffering, on our own fears and concerns and worries and anxieties, and we forget that we are part of a worldwide church, that we are part of a group of people all over the world who are following Jesus, who are experiencing things that we aren't experiencing, who are experiencing suffering to greater degrees than we are, that we are not alone, and that the church is bigger than any one of us. Do you know why we take this so seriously? Peter says, because we have an enemy. We have an enemy who is like a roaring lion. If you've ever watched like a safari on Discovery Channel and, and you, you, or you, know, you, you watch like a lion who's like sneaking up on their prey, that's what it's like. Peter says we, he's roaming, he's looking for a way to devour us. He's looking for that. Imagine if you walked into the room, you walked into your living room and saw a hamster in a cage. Not a huge reaction, right? In fact, some of you probably have a pet hamster in a cage and maybe you even let it roam around your house. Not that big of a deal. Until it gets sucked up in the vacuum. But. Last year, I walked into our laundry room <clears throat> and I opened the laundry room door and I looked and staring right up at me, we caught eye contact, was a squirrel. And we just stared at each other for a second and then he was like, I'm out. And then he ran into what I didn't know was a hole in our wall that went outside, and I, and I went in and I looked outside, and uh, there was a hole in our siding that maybe a woodpecker had made, and, and then we had done some, some work in our laundry room, so there was a hole in the sheetrock, and he had just made his way in, just hanging out in our laundry room. Bigger reaction than a pet hamster. Now imagine if you walked in and you found a raccoon with rabies. Bigger reaction, Right? Now imagine if you walked into your house and there was a lion sitting on your couch full-on Tiger King style. You'd probably run. That's a big reaction. And Peter is reminding us, look, we have an enemy who's like the lion, who wants to destroy us, and some of us live our lives like he's a cute little kitty cat on our couch. Peter says, whether we realize it or not, there is an unseen enemy in an unseen realm that we are fighting against. Now maybe you'd say this, I just don't believe that. 
And that's okay. And you don't have to believe that in order to be here and be welcome here and be a part of Westbridge. But let me tell you why I believe that. Not only because Jesus talks about it and the Apostle Paul talks about it and the Apostle Peter talks about it and James, the brother of Jesus, writes about it. But also, I believe there is something called the power of darkness because everywhere you look in this world, no matter where you come from, there's discouragement and there's defeat and there's depression on every continent on this planet. And the strategy that the enemy will use over and over and over again to try to defeat us is deception. He wants us to be deceived. He wants us to believe things that aren't true, which is why Jesus refers to Satan as the father of lies. See, the enemy wants you to believe that your past behavior defines you. That, that your identity is made up of the things that you've done. He wants you to believe that about yourself. The enemy wants you to believe that you don't have a purpose. The enemy wants you to believe that God's love isn't big enough for you. That, yeah, it, it works for other people, but it's not big enough for me. He wants you to believe that all that really matters is what happens today. He doesn't want you to think about eternity. He wants you to believe that you don't need other people in your life, that your life is all about you and your life revolves around you and that you don't need other people in your life. And eventually that just leads to a lot of defeat and depression and discouragement. And the reason that we even started Westbridge Church was because it was so obvious that there was so much hurt and so much discouragement and so much defeat and we wanted to be a place of hope. And Peter says, if you're going to do that, you've got to acknowledge that there's a fight on our hands. And it's not, it's not a, a fight over things that matter just in the moment. That there's an enemy who wants to deceive you, who wants to defeat you. But he doesn't stop there. Here's the encouragement that Peter leaves us with. Number four, remember how it ends. Remember how it ends. Throughout this letter, Peter is telling his audience that our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. That our hope is in a someone, not a something. And just as Jesus suffered temporarily and then rose from the dead, and the way that the scriptures talk about it, it says entered his glory, meaning he's now eternally uh, with God. Our suffering is also temporary, and we also are invited to share in his glory. We are citizens of heaven making our way through earth. So here's what Peter says next in these last verses. He says, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered for a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. He says, This thing that you're, this, this suffering that you're going through is temporary, but one day all things will be as they should be. So remember how it ends. Last Sunday, uh, as I do almost every week that, uh, you know, through the, through the NFL season, I sat down to watch the Vikings game. Now, because of uh, what I do here, and uh, typically I don't get home until at least about halftime, so I always record the Vikings game and watch it uh, once the game's pretty much over. <laughs> and, I'm, and so I'm watching it, I'm fast-forwarding through commercials and, you know, fast-forwarding through timeouts. It's amazing. It's great. Last week, good game for the Vikings, by the way. A little sloppy, but we pulled it out in the end. And I, I, it was a late game, 3 o'clock, and we had gone somewhere during the day, and I sit down to watch the game. The game's pretty much at the end of the game, and I'm sitting down just to watch it on recording. And as I'm watching, I'm about halfway through the first quarter, and I get a text from a buddy. He goes, dude, I thought the Vikings were going to find a way to give it away, but they pulled it out in the end. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, I'm just now watching it. I text him back. I'm like, dude, I just started watching. It's 0-0 zero to zero right now. He's like, oh, sorry. Literally, maybe two minutes later, I get a text from my sister, and she was like, 
holy cow, that game made me so nervous. I'm so glad they won. And I'm like, come on! And then I'm like, well, I mean, I'm going to watch it anyway. So I start to watch the game. But then here's what's amazing. Something shifted. Something happened. The Vikings, you know, they kind of pulled ahead a little bit and they were winning. And then towards the end of the first half, they let, they let uh, the other team just score a touchdown. And I was just like, oh, that's fine. I know how it ends. Second half, the other team got the ball. They came down, scored right away. I was like, come on. That's fine. I know how it ends. It made every horrible penalty, and there were a lot of them, every time that the Vikings shot themselves in the foot over and over again, it made it a lot more bearable. Because I was like, oh, come on, you guys. (laughs) I know how it ends. And this is what Peter is saying. He's going, look, guys, we know how it ends. Even though you're going through some stuff, even though there's some suffering temporarily here in this life, we know how it ends. When Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, it's not just empty words. The the cross is this statement. And so here's the reality. It's so much easier when I already know the ending. It's so much easier to endure suffering when I already know the ending. And Peter is going, look, after you've suffered for a little while in this life, he will restore and strengthen you and place you on a firm foundation eternity. One day, everything will be as it should be. We know how it ends, so you can endure. Two, two quick thoughts, and then we'll close. Number one, the cross of Jesus shows that he is willing to carry your worries. When Jesus says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, it's not just empty words. The cross is a statement of empathy. It's a statement of sacrifice. The cross is a reminder that Jesus is willing to that, that at the cross, he, he took our burdens, he took our sins, he took our cares and our worries and our anxieties on himself. You can cast your cares and your anxiety on him because he really cares about you. And the cross of Jesus is a reminder that Jesus is willing to carry your worries, and your anxieties, and your sin, and your issues. But it gets even better than that. The resurrection of Jesus shows that he is capable to overcome them. The cross of Jesus shows that he's willing to, but the resurrection of Jesus shows that he's capable of. Bring your anxiety to me. I defeated death, Jesus says. Your anxiety will crumble when you realize I'm not only willing to carry your anxiety, but I am capable of overcoming it. So what do you do? What do you do personally in the midst of anxiety? Are you worried about something that you don't have any control over anyway? Can worrying about it add a single day to your life? Will you carry your anxiety around like a burden, like a weight, like a virus, slowing and bogging down your entire system? Or would you be willing to cast your cares and your worries and your anxieties on the one who cares about you? And just say, God, I don't know how to deal with this. I'm going to hand it to you. And I'm going to thank you for the things that you've already done. I acknowledge that there's an enemy, but I know how it ends. So I'm going to hand this to you. And I pray that your peace would guard my heart and my mind. And my situation may not change, but I'm going to focus on seeing others and serving others. And I'm going to give this anxiety to you. And if you've never said yes to following Jesus, you need to know the cross of Jesus says that he's willing to and the resurrection proves that he's capable of.
And you've been invited because there's more to this life than this life. And one day all things will be as they should be. God is building a family and he wants you in it. And so Jesus allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, he rose from the dead. And you have been invited to be a part of God's family. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, you need to know you don't earn your way into it. You don't behave your way into it. It is an invitation that has been extended to every single one of us. And you can say yes to that today, right now, right where you sit, whether you're watching online here in the room, just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I walked away from you, and I thank you that you've never walked away from me. And I want to say yes to that invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to do my best to trust you and to follow your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us who are doing our best to follow you, but the truth is we're citizens of heaven, but our feet are planted here on earth, and we deal with a real enemy. We deal with anxieties and worries and concerns and burdens. And so may we give those things to you. May we spend our energy not fighting for things that only matter in the moment, but may we just give them to you and and say, God, let your peace guard my heart and my mind. And then, as citizens of heaven, may our lives here on earth make a difference. May the way that we live point other people to your love and to your grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.